Hey, good morning, everyone. Thank you for uh, braving the elements that come and listen to our series on questions. And I hope um, that you have lots of questions. I know I have lots of questions. I've always been the kind of person who asks questions. Even as a little kid, I remember one time in school, the teacher was talking about uh, elements and that all elements exist in one of three forms, in either a gas, a solid, or a liquid. And of course, I thought about that for a minute, and I raised my hand, and I said, what about fire? Needless to say, the teacher wasn't terribly happy with me because <laughs> they don't like to be stumped. But I've always been the kind of person who looks at whatever is being presented and kind of says, well, wait a minute, I want to understand that a little bit more. And so in my search for Christianity, or in, in really to answer the big questions, I've been the kind of person that always asks things. And I've been doing that for like 40 years. And I continue to this day to ask questions. And I encourage you to do exactly the same. Because what you'll find with God is, is that if you ask questions, He ultimately will answer those questions. And I have found myself on an amazing journey over my life where God has shown me lots of things and some very interesting things. And hopefully I'll share some of that with you. Now, I want to give you one disclaimer. Those of you who are students and you're listening, you're going to hear some things today that could give you ammunition against your teachers. Please be respectful, okay? You're going to understand some things and be able to ask some questions that other kids in class won't do, but it's not to suddenly go after your teachers, okay? Be respectful of your teachers. So the topic that I get is, is Christianity too narrow? Well, as soon as I hear that question, my response is another question, and it is compared to what? And I think what you find is you have to compare this against all other belief systems. And I've got to do that in 30 minutes. So wish me luck. So we're going to talk about some various different beliefs. I'm not going to go through religions by name, but I'm going to talk about precepts, things that people believe. There's relativism. Do all roads lead to God? Materialism. There is no God. There's only matter. Enlightenment. The ability to achieve perfection. Reincarnation, do you get second chance at this, at life? We'll talk about religion and our attempt to please God. And finally, we'll talk about Christianity, how we're saved by grace through faith. So when we talk about questions, you have to think, you even have to question, why do we even question in the first place? Have you ever thought about that? Probably not. But the reason we ask questions is so that we can learn. Well, the next question becomes, how much information is available for us to learn? We don't even know how much information is possible to learn, right? And all of us can know how much of everything there is to know, a very little bit. So the question then becomes, why even ask questions if we can't know everything and we need to know everything before we can ultimately come to the truth, right? Seems logical. I don't think that's true. I think really what we want to do is look at what are the questions that are being asked by everybody? Right? Not who's going to win the Super Bowl, not what kind of car should I buy, not what school I should go to, not what person I should date, but the really big questions. Why am I here? Is there a God? Everything we saw in that opening thing. Those are questions that are common to all humanity, and we all ask them. And why do we all ask them? I think we ask them because we were designed to ask those questions. There's a purpose and a plan behind our uh, inquiry into those particular topics. So the first thing we're going to look at is going to be relativism. And that's the thought that all roads lead to God. Now, just in and of itself, is that a true statement? Can all roads lead to God? Well, not if you believe in atheism or materialism, 
right? Because neither of those even believes in God. So it takes out two of those right away. Now, all of the other roads, we need to look at those. And, we, and what I want you to kind of do is go on a journey with me, because I've asked these questions over my lifetime. Do any of these things make sense? Do all roads lead to God? It seems kind of reasonable because it's an egalitarian idea, right? It's, in other words, it's saying, well, maybe what I believe isn't exactly correct, and I'm willing to listen to your perspective and see what you have to say. All of that's fair, and all of that's a reasonable thing to do. But when I started thinking that all roads lead to God, I, I suddenly discovered some problems. One of those problems is that, can I really believe that all beliefs are equal? In other words, are they all equally valid? So let's assume, for example, that I put before you three beakers, and all of them contain kind of a yellowish liquid. And I tell you, you have to choose one of these liquids uh, today. And so I pick three people, three people each choose a different one of the vials, saying, uh, I want, I'll take that one. And, and the point of this is, one of them is, is filled with sulfuric acid, one of them is filled with urine, and one of them is filled with Mountain Dew. And what you have to do is you have to pick the Mountain Dew, right? Because one's going to kill you, one's going to make you wish you were dead, and one's gonna, you're going to be perfectly happy drinking, right? So I set those three vials up, and somebody, each person picks a different one. Ultimately, somebody's going to be right, and somebody's going to be wrong. So I can't necessarily hold that all beliefs are necessarily equal. The other thing that's very interesting to me is why do we only ask that question in terms of religion? Do you ever think about that in terms of anything else that you do in life? Everybody here came in in a car, right? What would you think if after church we pass the plate, but this time rather than put money, we're all going to put our car keys in? Because the objective is just to get home, right? Does it matter which, which car keys you get? Oh, yeah, it does, <laughs> right? It's very, we're very particular about that. In the same way, if you brought a kid and dropped him off in class, <laughs> would you be okay if you just took any kid back? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right? Some of you are willing to trade, <laughs> right? But we don't think about that in that respect. In the same way, anybody go to a restaurant and just say, ah, it doesn't matter, just bring me something, right? We don't do that in life. It's interesting, though, that only in religion do we suddenly think, hey, it's okay to believe whatever you want to believe. I had problems with that. Can we all be right? Well, in some things, it really doesn't matter what we pick. If I ask you what your favorite color is, there's no repercussion to that. But some questions and some answers ultimately have life and death decisions. I remember one time I came across a student, and uh, she was an atheist. And we were talking about truth, and I told her I believed in absolute truth. Her response was, there's no such thing as absolute truth. I asked her, do you believe that? She said, absolutely. <laughs> <clears throat> we can put in our heads some ideas that just really don't make sense. Right? We can hold self-contradictory ideas. And even in the search for truth, sometimes we have to be able to recognize that. And so we have to pursue and we have to look at some other examples of what might possibly be truth. So let's examine materialism. Materialism basically says that there was something that happened a long time ago called a Big Bang. By the way, did you know that the Big Bang was a uh, pejorative term? In other words, it was meant to be a, uh, make fun of what was being described. And now it's become common term, right? But in the Big Bang, what they believe is that there was a singularity. In other words, something came from nothing. Now, I want you to think about what nothing really is. There's no space. Just think if the bang would have gone off and there was no space. It would have just been the big rock, 
right? There would have been no place for it all to go. But what the scientists tell you is that there was a singularity and it exploded. And if you get more and more into this, you'll find out that the three basic elements that were created at the time of the Big Bang were hydrogen, helium, and lithium. Now, this kind of t shows you an example of how uh, a planetary system is, is designed, but I want you to think about in your mind, because when I hear that, and I start to picture this, I get a picture in my mind, and I see all of these subatomic particles basically blowing up in outer space, boom. And as they blow up, space expands. They call that inflation, right? To, to, mat to basically hold all of these particles that are moving out. They're moving out at extremely strong speeds. Now, when you sit back and say, well, wait a minute, how do those then manage to cluster back together? Because gravity doesn't work on particles. It works on really, really big objects. Well, guess what? They came up with something called dark matter. Well, dark matter is interesting because nobody's observed it. But we know that it's there because the mathematical equations say that it has to be there. Really? Science is supposed to be observation. Now, the other thing that happens is space is expanding, and it's still expanding. It's like, well, what's making it expand? Well, they'll tell you, oh, that's dark energy that's making it expand. Anybody ever observed dark energy? No, haven't seen dark energy. And when you pursue that even more, you know what you find out? Whenever they come up with the, what they call the, uh, uh, what is that, the standard model, the standard model only, if you measure all of the mass in the standard model, it only accounts for 4% of the matter, of the mass in the universe. That means 96% of the mass in the universe, in order to make everything work like what we're being told in science, has to be there. But it's not, and nobody's found it, but it's okay to come up with dark energy and dark matter. I look at that and I get a little bit suspicious, because I want answers to questions. I want to be able to see that what people are telling me is really true. Now, interestingly enough, when you talk about the expansion of the universe, did you know 11 times in the Bible it says that God stretches out the heavens? How did an ancient book ever get that right? I mean, we didn't understand that until the last century. And yet in this ancient book, it talks about that. Now, some of the, of the scientists like to think, well, what happened is, is this universe expanded and then it collapsed and then it expanded and it collapsed, the oscillating theory. Trouble is, there's not enough energy once the thing gets spread out far enough to basically collapse it all back together. So I'm going, that doesn't seem to make sense to me. The other thing that begins to happen when you look at how uh, solar systems are formed, you get this gaseous cloud and the gaseous cloud expands and blows up. And then all of a sudden something causes that gas to want to contract. And as it contracts, it begins to be put into motion, right? They call that the angular momentum of, of the, uh, the solar system. And all of the planets start spinning around the sun until you get to the last diagram. You're going, wow. That's absolutely amazing, except there's a problem with that. The problem is, is that Venus, well, each of the, each of the, they're all going the same way, and each of the planets should be spinning the same way as what they're going around the sun. Turns out Venus and Uranus don't follow that pattern. Scientists can't figure out why the angular momentum changes, right? It just doesn't make sense, and it's as if somebody was putting some things out there to make, it, no matter what we try to understand, there always seems to be an exception. It's like, well, almost everything fits. But in every single case, there's always something that kind of destroys what we believe about that. We're told, for example, that the universe is 13.7 or 8 billion years old, depending on who you talk to. Now, the question becomes, and this is fun, go Google that. How do we know that the universe is 13.8 billion years old? Well, it turns out they measure the, the uh, microwave background radiation, 
right? We know how big the universe is, and in order to figure out time, you have to do that, or excuse me, distance, no, time, you have to measure it against velocity. So basically, you take the size of the, of the universe and you divide by the speed of light. You do that and you get 13.8 billion years. Now I hear that and I have a problem with that. My problem is, is how do we know that the speed of light is a constant? Everybody says, well, we know that the speed of light is a constant. Really? When the universe was created, are we sure that the, that the initial speed was really 186,000 miles per second? If it was faster, guess how old the universe is? A lot less than that. Does that necessarily mean that I'm right? No, not at all. All I'm saying is, is that you can provide an exception, and if that exception doesn't hold true, right, or that exception is true, it invalidates what we've all been told. So there's always reasons to question what it is that we believe. And as it turns out, there are scientists who believe that the speed of light has been slowing down. We don't know the initial velocity at the point of the original inflation, if that's how everything happened, right? But that's what we're being told, and we're expected to believe that. Now, the thing that's very interesting when you sit back, does it really matter how old the universe is? Eh, not really. If it's 13.8 or 13.5, does it make any real difference? Well, not probably to most of us, but there's a particular reason why scientists like a, a, an old universe. And that's because they want us to believe in evolution. So I remember in biology and science class, and probably most of you are familiar with this, you've seen this picture. And as soon as you see this picture, what do you see? Your mind sees a pattern. You see the pattern, you go, yeah, I can see that. We go from being a monkey to an ape to a couple transitional forms, and there we are as a man. Now, what do we know about evolution? Evolution is random mutations over time, right? Does that look like a random pattern to you? It doesn't look like a random pattern to me. If I was putting numbers on that, I'd go one, two, three, four, five, six. If you rolled a dice, do you think you'd roll a dice in perfect succession? Remember, this is all random. So shouldn't it be perhaps an ape, a man, an in-between, and end up with the monkey on the end? I mean, if it's really random, there's no reason for it to get progressively better. That's what they're telling us. And that's how, I, when I look at these pictures, I'm going, well, that's not random. The other thing is, what if you flip the picture? Is there any reason to believe the monkey can't be the highest order animal? It's all random. They don't have to deal with health insurance. They don't have to deal with taxes. There's lots of things that they've avoided. So you can easily make the argument that they're more adapted to their environment, perhaps, than we are. Now, there's another thing, and they never teach you this in biology. There's another problem with that picture. Does anybody see it? There's no women in there. Now, why does that matter? Because one of the biggest problems for the evolutionist is how did you get sexes? Think about that for a minute. You've got a single-celled organism, and that single-cell organism is going to absolutely give up its ability to reproduce and live and trade that over to another being, right? The only way for any of us to be here is you need a man and a woman to come together to do that. Now, without getting too explicit, I mean, just coordinating the physical <laughs> act becomes incredibly difficult, not to mention the information that's exchanged. We're made up of 46 chromosomes. So what if the guy says, well, I want to give 40, and the woman says, well, I want to give 40. Well, if you get an 80-chromosome human being, they don't look like a human being. Somehow you have to get 23 and 23 in perfect order in order to make all of that possible. And in the 1950s, we discovered some interesting things about how reproduction works, and we're going to talk about that more in just a second. <clears throat> 
Oh, interestingly enough, getting back to the whole idea about reproduction, if you ever want to, well, I don't want you to say stump your teacher, but if you ask about what's known as the queen's problem of evolution, the queen's problem of evolution is how do you get sexual reproduction? Because if you're trying to, to have survival of the fittest, you'd never turn over your ability to regenerate yourself or the next generation to another being, right? Because in between, you can, get, you can screw that process up and you will die, right? So it just doesn't fit the model, but they don't like to talk about that. Now, one of the things that we've all been told is, look, we know from Darwin that mutations exist. We've all seen this picture, right? Famous picture about the, uh, the uh, uh, finch beaks and how they change. And as the environment changed on the Galapagos Islands, the finches' beaks changed. Interestingly enough, you can't deny that, right? Now, there's some things, though, that they don't tell you about this diagram. The first thing is, is any believer would tell you that's really not evolution, that's adaptation. The beak always stays a beak, it just gets bigger and thicker. And as, for example, the environment got different and it got um, the nuts or whatever they were eating became harder and the shells were tougher, the beaks became bigger in order to uh, be able to crush that. But what happened is some scientists went back to Galapagos, you know, after several hundred years from Darwin being there, and what did they find out? That a lot of the beaks returned back to the original state. Right? It isn't that they were making a progress and transforming into something completely different. They just adapted. And when they didn't need that adaptation, they came back to their original size. You're going, well, that's incredible. Nobody told me that when I was in high school, when I'm learning about that. But that's what happens. And how does a bird know how to make a beak? From DNA. It's information. And as we've got smarter and we've learned about computers, we've learned a lot about information science. We discovered in the 1950s the DNA molecule. The DNA molecule is really an information transfer mechanism. Anybody ever got online and see how a cell operates? Have you seen the little videos about that and what all incurs inside of a cell? It's absolutely amazing. It's a little miniature factory. And in that little miniature factory, it exchanges information. Now, once you have information, you have to have intelligence. How do we know that? Well, if you're in computer science, you understand this really easily. There's a thing called syntax and semantics. What is syntax? Syntax is your letters, A, B, C, D, E, F, G, right? What's semantics? It's how you put those letters together. And let's just say we put the letters together, C-A-T. Well, the only reason you and I all know that it means cat is because that's already been agreed upon by both sides. If both sides don't already agree upon that, you can't have information transfer. How do we know this? For example, when, they dis when we discovered, well, I shouldn't say discovered, but it's always been here, Egyptian hieroglyphics. They didn't know how to translate Egyptian hieroglyphics. Why? Because if you give somebody a language set without a way to translate it, it's total gibberish. If I give you a, a, a textbook that's written in Chinese and it has no pictures or any way for you to figure it out, you will never be able to translate that book. It's absolutely impossible. In the same way with Egyptian hieroglyphics, they weren't able to translate that until they came across the Rosetta Stone. The Rosetta Stone, I think, had Assyrian or some other languages and hieroglyphics. And once they had something to compare that, that they knew how that language worked, they could then translate that over. So how do you get DNA to give information transfer if it hasn't already been agreed upon by cells? It's absolutely impossible. So you go, hmm, materialism doesn't seem to work. Evolution doesn't seem to work. There seems to be tons of information, right, that gets transferred and it doesn't make sense without a creator. You know, one interesting thing, Darwin always thought a cell was just a simple blob. He had no idea what was contained inside of that. 
The cell is absolutely amazing uh, structure. We can hardly comprehend all that it's capable of doing. Now, interestingly enough, <clears throat> we know that uh, scientists are now starting to, to come to the end of, I guess, well, I, I shouldn't say come to the end. They're starting to question some of the things that have been assumed for a long, long time. I remember the days of Carl Sagan, if you were around in my generation, and he was the guy who said, hey, there's billions and billions of stars, and they, because there's so many stars, there's got to be life all over the, the universe. Well, it turns out 80% of the galaxies in the universe are globular clusters. You can't have life in globular clusters. Why? Because in globular clusters, the stars all rotate in and out of the center, right? So if you start to produce life and it rotates into the inner center where there's extreme radiation, it'll kill all the life. So you're going, oh, well, that only gets us to, to uh, spiral galaxies like ourselves. The more they keep looking at all of this, the more they keep finding that it's, it's becoming much more difficult. We thought all that you needed was a, a habitable, you know, a, what is it, like a, a particular sun, the right distance, and they had like 10 or 12 different variables. Now it turns out the more that we understand about how life is constructed, that the number of variables is just off the charts. And so some of the leading scientists are now beginning to question, they said, what's really the question is not how did we get here, but why are we here in the first place? Everything is structured against us. And it's interesting when you listen to those scientists explain this, because you're going, it appears as if somebody was manipulating science at the fundamental level in order to get you and me here. And you're going, when I read the book, that's what it says, right? The other thing as a result of this, I always find this interesting. It's kind of like when evolution came along, they were sitting there going, well, what we need is lots of time. Well, they figured out a way to get lots of time with the size of the, of the universe in 13.8 billion years. Well, now they're starting to discover, well, even in all that time, 13.8 billion years, it's not enough to produce life with all the constraints that we know. So now what do we have? We're saying, oh, well, now it's multiverses. So what we're going to do is we're going to create an infinite number of possibilities so that every possibility can exist. Look, there's not multiverses. There's one more verse. There's an earth and there's a heaven. There's two realms, and that's what the Bible has told us all along. We could get into some of this stuff, and there's questions on questions. I mean, if you want to talk to me later about any of this, I'd be happy to, to discuss some of it with you, and I wish I had more time to go over a lot of this with you. The other thing you have to consider is what's the ultimate ramification if you believe in materialism. The ultimate ramification is that you should eat and drink for tomorrow we die. The only hope of survival we have is that of the fittest. If they decide to take advantage of us, there's not a lot that we can do because that's just the way the world works. Is that the kind of world you want to live in? Not the one that I want to. So we begin to look for a better solution. And one of the oldest religions is that that basically talks about enlightenment. And enlightenment says that there is a number of spiritual qualities that we all want to possess. So I looked that up on Google. I said, okay, Google, what does it mean to attain enlightenment? Google said, well, here are the characteristics. You want to be happy, you want to be peaceful and serene, loving, kind, compassionate, not self-centered, emotionally stable, patient and understanding, humble, insightful and open-minded, have inner strength, leadership, you want to be healthy and committed to spiritual practices. Who could be opposed to that? Great list, right? Then I asked Google, I said, tell me, how many people achieved enlightenment? One list came back with 11 and another came back with 17. Now, if the quest is to find out what road is the most narrow, right? I'm going to suggest you probably don't want to pursue this one. 
the chance of you succeeding is really, really small. And interestingly, when I'm reading through that list, again, I always look at these lists and it's like, what's missing? And I look at that and there's something missing. And you know what it is? Sin. Because you have a problem with enlightenment. Let's just say if it were possible for you to figure all of this stuff out, what about all the stuff that you screwed up originally? You can't stop that, and we understand that, right? Um, the other problem I have is, like, who gets to make the determination whether or not you've achieved enlightenment? Because at some point, if you say, hey, I've achieved enlightenment, I think you have to go back to square one because you just failed on humility, <laughs> right? It just didn't work for me. Um, Right, and the ultimate thing is how do you basically atone or how do you make up for your past mistakes? Is there anybody up here or out there who would like to sit back and say, hey, there's things that I just assume you not know. I think all of us would do that, right? No matter how wise we try to get, no matter how at peace we try to get with ourselves, life still progresses. And we have issues with that. We have issues with ourselves, if we'll be honest. And it's ultimately how do I correct, how do I fix the problems that I have in my life? So enlightenment didn't do it for me. But then I realized part of one of the features of enlightenment is that you can also have reincarnation. So what is reincarnation? Well, if you can't get it right in this life, I'm going to give you a whole bunch of more attempts at this. Okay? Now, think about that for a while. How many chances at this game do you want? I kind of looked at it and says, how many times do you want to go through junior high again? I didn't want to do it. It didn't seem like a, a fair and reasonable question to even ask, right? When you look around at all the people around you, how many of those do you think have been here a whole bunch of times and still haven't figured it out? I don't know how many times I've been, if this is true, how many times I've had a, a chance at the apple here, but I know I probably haven't got it right. That seems to be incredibly cruel to me. This is like Groundhog Day in the extreme. I got to keep doing this over and over and over again. And I guarantee you, there's going to be people who will never, never figure it out. Matter of fact, I think you could make a decent argument that none of us will ever figure it out. So then we take the next step. Well, if enlightenment and reincarnation aren't going to do it, what's the next logical alternative? The next logical alternative will be religion. Okay? A process whereby we can figure out a way to make God happy with us. And so all of, the, all of their various religions around the world, matter of fact, do you know how many religions there are? Again, Google's a wonderful thing. You, Google loves questions. There's 4,200 religions in the world. So buckle up, we're going to go through all 4,200. <laughs> no, we're not going to do that, but we're going to look at some of the things that are, that are uh, essential in most of all of these, right? So the first one is is works. And what does works mean? There's some religions that say, for example, if you do these five things, you get to go to heaven. Seems easy enough, right? But who ultimately saves you? You save yourself. And if you save yourself, why do you need a God? Doesn't seem to make sense. Then there's the people who believe in ethics. All I have to do is try to be good, right? I'm going to live by the golden rule. Trouble is, what happens when I don't? What happens when I don't love my neighbor as myself? What do I do? Can't figure that out on an ethical basis. And ultimately then, who gets to determine your source of ethics? You. And if you're the source of right and wrong, guess what that makes you? Your own God. 
again, I can't help but ask these questions because every time I ask them, I keep finding the failures of these particular belief systems. And finally, there's the belief that, hey, all that we have to do is achieve balance. And by that, I mean, all I have to do, I, there's a cosmic scale, and on that cosmic scale, I'm going to be judged, did I do more good or did I do more evil, right? Trouble is, is what happens when I do evil, right? It's the speeding ticket analogy. When an officer pulls you over for speeding, did any of you ever say, yeah, officer, but all day long I've been going the speed limit? It was only this brief one minute. He says, well, if you've done that all day long, surely I can't convict you of that. It doesn't work, right? We all understand that. When we do evil, there ultimately has to be justice. There ultimately has to be. Otherwise, we wouldn't like what heaven would become. Heaven would become just like earth, right? Everybody could do whatever they want if there is no justice. So again, we're confronted. What do we do about the problem of sin? And that's where Christianity comes in. Christianity believes that you're saved by faith through, saved by grace through faith in Jesus. Matter of fact, it also speaks to all the other forms of belief. Did you know that? Interestingly enough, God anticipated everything that mankind could believe in. Let's look at the topic of relativity. What does the Bible say? John 14, 6. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. In other words, every road won't get you there, only, only Jesus. In terms of science, Romans 1 says, and they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshiped and served created things rather than the Creator, who is forever blessed. In other words, don't put your hope in all created matter. It isn't going to get you anywhere. Three, talking about enlightenment. In John chapter 1, verse 19, he says, there was true light which coming into the world enlightens every man. It was the true light that you get enlightenment from, not something that you achieve for yourself. In terms of reincarnation, it says in Hebrews 9, 27, Inasmuch as it had appointed for men to die once, and then after this comes judgment. So much for reincarnation. In terms of works, well, I can do enough good that God will be happy with me. The Bible says in Ephesians 2, verse 8, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that is not of yourself. It is the gift of God. There's nothing that you can do. Salvation ultimately has to come from God because that's the only thing that makes sense. In terms of ethics, it says in Matthew 5, 48, Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Oh my goodness, the ethical standard in Christianity is you have to be absolutely perfect. Wait a minute, I thought we said in enlightenment nobody could achieve it. God doesn't expect you to achieve it, right? That's the interesting thing about Christianity. And in terms of balance in James chapter 2, verse 10, it says, For whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles at just one point is guilty of breaking it all. Oops, I made one mistake and I'm going to be held accountable for it. That's what the Bible says. That seems unjust, but... It really isn't because of the solution that God gives. But see, we have a problem. We like to think that we're pretty smart. And the younger we are, the smarter we think we are. When I was a teenager, I was one of the smartest people you'll ever meet. Now as I get older, not so much the case because I understand how little I know. And in that line, God tells us, or the Bible tells us in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, it says, where is the wise man? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since the wisdom of God through the world, its wisdom did not come to know God. God was well pleased through the foolishness of the message preached to those who believe. For indeed, Jesus, Jews ask for signs and Greeks search for wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified to Jews a stumbling block and to the Gentiles foolishness. But to those who are being... <clears throat> excuse me. 
but to those who are being called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God, because the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. What the Bible is telling us is it's basically it's saying you aren't as smart as you think you are. And not only that, if you, if you really believe that you're really smarter than everybody else, God is going to confound you. I've seen so many scientists and guys who, who possess great intellect say, I've read the Bible, and it, none of it makes sense to me. It's a, it was designed that way. It was designed, if you don't come with a humble heart and you don't start to look at what it's doing and what it's saying, you'll never get it. So when I see that, I kind of smile going, that's an interesting God. Because he wants you to understand who's in charge, and you're not in charge, and we don't like that. Matter of fact, we fight against that. And you have to understand the nature of God. Can you find God on your own? You can. You can see the creation and believe that there is a God. Matter of fact, 80% of the planet believes there's a God. And I think it's because they see the creation. But what do we know about him? What do, we, do we know what he likes? Do we know what he hates? No. The only way that you can ever come to know God is if God reveals himself to you. And that's what you find in the Bible. Oftentimes what we find is that religion attempts to find God without direct revelation. Right? We speculate. We say, well, we want God to be this way. Matter of fact, a lot of critics will say, well, man makes God in mankind's image. And it's for that very reason. You can't find out who God is by yourself. And if you decide you're going to tell everybody what God is really like, you're going to be wrong. The only way you can find out who God is is if God reveals himself to you. <coughs> and the only re religion that really does, or rather, the better thing to ask is if you really believe that, make a religion prove that case. Make them prove that it is by divine revelation. So let's now examine Christianity and let's see what Christianity has to say. First of all, it gives you a very unique story, and that's the story of Jesus. It was written over uh, 1,500 years by 40 authors, which is an incredible feat in and of itself. <clears throat> if you considered somebody writing a science textbook over 1,500 years, do you think it could be consistent? No. If, you, if you basically you wrote about anything over such a period of time by that many authors, it would never be consistent, and yet the Bible is consistent. It talks about the very opening story of Adam and Eve with sin and death and the promise of a seed. Then it goes on to Abraham, and Abraham is promised a son even in his own age. And during that time, God creates a unilateral covenant and says, Abraham, I want you to be perfect, and if you're not perfect, I'm not going to punish you. I'm basically going to pay the penalty for you. In other words, if you're not perfect, Abraham, I will die in your place. Profound, profound stories. <clears throat> then we get Moses, and he comes across a burning bush. And in the burning bush, what does he say? He says, I want to know what your name is. And what does God say? He doesn't say, my name is Zeus or Floyd or Bill or Bob. He says, my name is I am that I am. Now, when I first heard that, it's like, that's incredibly profound. If I was looking for God and somebody said, well, what's your name? And you said, I am. It's like, wow, really good answer, <laughs> right? <clears throat> then we see an entire sacrificial system created for the Jews. And what was the basis of the sacrificial system? It said, basically, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin, <clears throat> Then we get King David. King David is promised an heir who will be a king for all eternity. In Isaiah, we see uh, words in Isaiah 53 about a suffering servant. <clears throat> we see throughout all of the Bible this history of Israel. And if this was going to be your history book, I don't think any of us would want it published because it, it talks too much about all of their failures, 
all of their strife, all of their sin, all of their rejection of God. If you really were going to write a book about yourself, you'd tell about all the best things you ever did. And yet that's not what we find in here. We find the truth of a people who've existed over thousands of years and yet have put their, their faith in God. Finally, we come to a, a unique individual who is born at just the right time. His name is Jesus. <clears throat> and Jesus is very interesting because his very name, name means God is salvation. We thought about all those other philosophies, all those other beliefs. What did they all have in common? The common belief was I can save myself. He comes along and he has a name that says God is going to save you. That is remarkable. And then you look at his life over and over again. He claims to be the son of God and he even uses the, the, the sacred name. He will use the name I am, uh, I am that I am, right? He does that several times in doing that. Multiple times they will try to kill him and what does he do? He walks away. Multiple times they try to make him a king, and what does he do? He walks away. He claims to be without, for, without sin. Even he goes so far as to forgive sin. Now, in a religious community, they will stone you for that. And yet he came to that group of people, the Jews, and made those claims, and they wanted him dead. They get, ultimately organize a plot to kill him, which is interesting because if you're God, can you kill God? Not really. It's kind of like killing Superman. You can't kill Superman. Well, they finally came up with kryptonite, right? Well, with Jesus, if he really is God, can you kill him? Well, when they wanted to try to do this, they organized a plot and they sent a cohort of soldiers to basically arrest him. You know how many is in a cohort? 600 soldiers. They come to him and they say, <clears throat> we're looking for Jesus of Nazareth. You know what Jesus says? I am. When he says I am, what happens? 600 guys bite the dirt, Right? It passes very quickly, and you have to pay attention. You're going, well, he's not like the average guy, right? Romans don't fall on the ground. He goes before uh, Pontius Pilate, and in talking to him, what does Pontius Pilate normally see? Because he knows he has life and death over everybody, normally they're all pleading and begging for mercy. He looks at Pilate and says, you have no power over me if it had not been given to you from above. Pilate begins to freak out. There's something unusual about this man. When he's on the cross, he t basically proclaims, don't you know that if I could send 12 legions to basically take me down from the cross, you know how big a legion is? About 11,000. That's 132,000 angels. One angel on one night killed, I think it was 150,000 Assyrians. I hate to see what 12 legions of angels could do. <clears throat> Above his cross, there was a picture. There was a sign. And you know what the sign said? In three different languages, it said, Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews. But they had a problem with that because if you go back to the story of Moses, when he says, I am that I am, the letters in Hebrew are Y-H-W-H. It's a tetragrammaton, right? Meaning Yahweh. The Jews became incensed because on that sign, it had the letters saying Yeshua, the Nazarene, King of the Jews. It comes out Y-H-W-H. -H. Now, what do you think the chances are that a bunch of Romans accidentally would use, uh, you know, the uh, original name of God to the Jews? It's not by accident. Matter of fact, the rabbis say uh, coincidence is not a kosher word. <clears throat> he dies on Passover at the same time the sacrificial lambs are dying. At the time of his death, the, the uh, curtain in the temple is rent in two. Do you know how thick that curtain was? We kind of think it's curtains like we might have on a door or a window. No, this thing was 18 inches thick. And it was rent from top to bottom, an impossible task. <clears throat> we know you can't kill God. Could anybody kill Jesus? 
No, if you pay attention to the scriptures, it says he laid down his life, right? He allowed this to happen. And every time I look at this, I'm going, there's too many facts. There's too many interesting ideas. Somebody doesn't make up a story like this. It's impossible. It's too consistent over time. It's just an incredible story. Finally, at his death, all of his disciples hide. They all run away. And yet, he rises from the dead. Nobody claims that. Nobody, I mean, there have been lots of guys who've claimed to be God, but nobody claims to be without sin, demonstrates it, and then rises from the dead. <clears throat> now, if you wanted to be king, if you wanted to lead a great political movement, what would you do? You'd rise up all of your followers. Does he do that? No. He basically tells them, I, wanna, I want you to do what I've done, and I'm going to be with you forever, and he ascends into heaven. And now these 12 apostles basically go out and overcome potentially one of the greatest empires that ever existed. Incredible. I mean, the story is absolutely incredible. Do we have any other proof? Well, yeah, matter of fact, we do. <clears throat> Next slide, please. Have you ever seen this? Looks like a beautiful rainbow. You know what that is? That's a map of all the references in the Bible. So from Genesis 1, see the one that goes all the way over to the end? That's Revelation. The Bible is a very unique book. It gives these references over and over and over again. Matter of fact, if you wanted to know, we know that there was prophecy about someone who was going to come and be the Messiah. Are we sure that it was Jesus? What if it's somebody else? The Jews are still waiting for a Messiah, right? All of us Christians believe he was the guy. How do we know? You know how many people have ever existed in time? Interesting. Google that. 108 billion. That's a lot of people. <clears throat> How many prophecies are there in the Bible concerning uh, the Messiah? Turns out there's 456. You know what the probability of any one person fulfilling just eight of those prophecies is? One times 10 to the 17th. That's an incredibly large number. You know how what it takes for the probability of something never happening? They figure that out. There's a probability. One times 10 to the 50th. You know what the probability of Jesus fulfilling all 456 prophecies like he did? This is incredible. It's 1 times 10 to the 157th. Do you know how many atoms there are in the universe? 10 to the 82nd. The probability of Jesus being the Messiah is greater than all the atoms in the universe. You know what that means? The statistical mathematical probability is you can be more sure that he's the Christ than you or I exist here today from a mathematical standpoint. And people say, well, you just believe by faith. It's like my faith is built on truth, right? I understand that. They tried to kill him six different times. They tried to, to make him king, and he left. And yet finally one day, and if you remember on the very first sermon in this series, Brian made reference to this passage, talks about Palm Sunday, and he comes riding in on a donkey. And you know what he says to the crowd? He says, if you had known in this thy day the things that make for your peace, but as it is, they're hidden from your eyes. Like, okay, what does that mean? It means if you had been reading your Bible, you would have known who I am, because this was prophesied in the book of Daniel, that on this exact day, Jesus the Messiah would ride into Jerusalem. There could only possibly be one person ever in time to fulfill that specific prophecy. And that's exactly what he did. Was the resurrection just a hoax? Did you get 11 people to believe something else? 
No, 11 of them were martyred. They, any of them could have basically confessed and gave up the lie, right? If it was just a sham, it wasn't. The other one was boiled and left to exile on Patmos. So what's the point of all this? The point is we should all ask questions. We all should seek because we're created to do that. We want to know, is there really truth? Is there really a reason why I'm here? Is there really a God? And if he exists, what is he like? I looked into lots of different alternatives over my lifetime. Every single one of them left me with questions. Christianity is the only thing where I've continued to look. I've continued to ask questions. And every time I ask questions, I find answers. And the answers that I find are absolutely profound. I did not reach out to God. He reached out to me through his son, Jesus Christ. Just like it says, right? He had to save me. I couldn't save myself. It's impossible. I have a sin problem. There are things that I would never confess to this group because I'm ashamed of it. And yet, there is a way to atone for that in the logical way that both fulfills all righteousness and all justice. Through one person, Jesus Christ, all of our sins were basically laid. And he took our place on the cross. He received the punishment that any of us should have received. So when I, I sit back and I contemplate, is Christianity too narrow? I don't know what to say. I sit back and say, Christianity is, is not narrow. I can find faults and I can find narrowness in everything else that I believe. Only Christianity allows for every man, every woman, every person to be saved. There's a way. You find a loving God. You find a God who's concerned about yourself. And oftentimes what I found is I ask questions. And the reason I ask questions is really to protect my heart. I put a boundary in my mind. It's like, well, I don't believe because of this, this, and this. If, you look, if you're honest and you look diligently, you'll find lots of answers in the Bible. You'll find lots of answers in Jesus Christ. But one day, you have to let this open up. And when you let that open up, Jesus will come into your heart. He will explain who he is. He will answer your questions. You will have a sense of peace and understanding that surpasses everything that you could ever imagine. God doesn't expect us to be perfect, but he does want us to be forgiven, and he wants us to live with him forever. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you uh, for this morning. We thank you for your word. We thank you for all the questions that we all have. I pray that we always turn our hearts and our minds to you, that we would find understanding through your son. And that's what you promise. You promise us to keep on seeking, keep on asking, keep on knocking. And that we will do. For we love you and we look forward to the day when we shall see you face to face. Amen.